The internet doesn't have all the answers. But that doesn't mean we can't find them. This is Under Understood. I'm Billy Disney. I'm Adrian Jeffries. I'm John Lago Marcino. I'm Regina Delay. Today, Regina hits a dead end online when researching forms of male birth control. Have you guys ever heard of heat-based contraception? Uh, like not um, not having babies with hot people. What? <laughs> no. Not having babies because it's a heat wave and it's too hot to move. Honestly, that one I understand. You're talking about uh, watching the movie Heat from 1995 with Robert De Niro while having intercourse. <laughs> Um, all of you are wrong. Heat-based contraception is basically when you cook your testicles and as a result, you become infertile. So you can do this a variety of ways. You can take a hot bath. You could have heat generated by ultrasound. I'm reading all of this from a Wikipedia article, but the article is flagged for not having good enough citations. Uh, Why were you looking into this? So I'm at home at my sister's house and she has a newly born baby who cries 16 to 18 hours of the day. And so I'm thinking about babies <laughs> and then I come across this tweet from this woman named Gabrielle Blair and she in a series of 10,000 tweets, <laughs> uh, they were all great, but they were very long, um, makes the point that you know, men are responsible for causing pregnancy and yet women are responsible for preventing pregnancy. And so I thought, you know, like it's a 50-50 split going into it. Why can't it be a 50-50 split preventing it? And so that's how I got into this like rabbit hole of male birth control. Right, like there's no male pill. Wait, so what brought you to heat-based contraception with that in mind? I think I was just Googling male contraception and looking at different options. And then on Wikipedia, when you come across it, you go to heat-based contraception. Or I got linked to the Wikipedia page for heat-based contraception. Got it. So you can apply the heat a bunch of different ways, but the point is that by heating your balls, you become infertile. I'm I'm actually very familiar with this. I've been doing this with a MacBook Pro for years. <laughs> <laughs> MacBooks aren't mentioned in this article, but it does link to a study that used hot baths. It seems like if a man bathed in 116 degrees Fahrenheit, then it could provide contraceptive protection for six months. And if he did 110 degrees, then it could be four months. Wait, what? what is this like? Is this scientific or is this This can't like, be real. They did it. They tested it with like eight volunteers, nine volunteers. That doesn't seem statistically significant. Hold on. I literally just found a website made by a guy who tried this, it looks like. Oh, my God. His name is Chris Jenks, and he was testing what he calls testicular heating. Testicular heating is a really good phrase. St Oh, starting in November 1998. What? Puzzlepiece.org slash bcontrol slash malebc.html. Careful, it's not secure. I'm going to um, just, this is <laughs> this seems to be a hand-coded website is what I'm guessing. Wow. There are photos. 
photos of underwear. Oh, wow. He has a photo of underwear with a string attached. (laughs) The loop goes around my penis at the base and is secured to my underwear in the part between my legs by a safety pin. Oh, God. (laughs) This is amazing. This is a very bad accident waiting to happen. So there's a pair of tidy whities here on uh, on a a red sheet. And then at the very bottom of the underwear, uh, there's a piece of like yarn or twine that's safety pinned to the bottom um, in kind of a loop. And that loop is being closed by what looks like one of those like uh, spring-loaded... Like a backpack clip? Yeah, like he a... He calls ba- it a cord stop, oh. which it looks like, I don't know, I, you would see these on like backpacks or whatever. It's like a button you can push, and when you push it, you can slide it on the string, and then when you let it go, it tightens. But this whole site, I would say, is very... It feels very uh, homebrew, for lack of a better term. It's like very plain HTML... It's the pictures of the underwear look very, you know, it's like, it's like a step below something you'd buy on Etsy. I Um, mean, yeah, who would buy this on Etsy? Well. (laughs) Didn't realize anatomy wise that you can literally push your balls like out of the scrotum and into your abdomen. No, 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 no. Yeah, Wait, that's how it works. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Why is that helpful to put them in the abdomen? Don't you want them isolated so you could heat them? And that heats them up, basically. Uh, You're pushing uh, them in uh, there so that they get hot. <laughs> so this is a thing that a lot of people do, I think, for other reasons. Like transgender women with testicles will will do this. I, uh, but the concept of doing it for, for heating your testicles specifically yeah. seems like... I don't unique is the word. And so the testicles stay up there and they're heated by your body and that works as a form of birth control. That seems to be what he's saying, yes. And he he did this for eleven years? No. Yeah. That's dedication. I respect eleven years of he I just read that as eleven months. This is so wild. Yeah, eleven years of heating. So what's the question that we have to answer? The question is, why haven't we invested more in male contraception? That, for sure. But also, like, if we invested resources in this, could this actually solve unplanned pregnancies? I think we got to talk to this guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm into it. Coming up, Regina tracks down Christopher Jenks the man who heated his testicles for 11 years in the name of science and equality. Testicular heating. Testicular heating. All right, Regina, what did you find? So I talked to Chris. Hello. Hi, is this Chris? Yes, this is Chris. What's he like? So Chris was the most matter-of-fact person that I think I've ever talked to, particularly about a topic that is so not matter-of-fact in literally any way. He just really wants to document things and share them with the world. Well, the inspiration for creating this website, PuzzlePiece.org, it's, it's actually uh, run out of my a web server in my home. Um, 
was to put up things that are solutions for, I guess I consider them underutilized solutions. So they're solutions which seem really elegant and effective, but which most people don't know about. Wait, wait, wait. So he's hosting this website from his home? Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, except for the fact that the first time I emailed him, it didn't work and his whole website went down. And so then I had all of these like crazy anxiety conspiracy theories about how maybe I spooked him and like he didn't realize that anyone could find his website because like he has all data on it. But then, of course, it turns out that he just self-hosts his website and the computer probably just like turned off or something. And so Billy found him on LinkedIn. My, my training is in organic chemistry. And so I have a scientific background. So that's what gets me into all these experiments. And um, basically, I'm interested in things that make life easier. Okay, so this guy formally studied chemistry then? Yeah, he got a PhD in organic chemistry from UC Davis. So he's a real scientist? Yeah, absolutely. So what are these other experiments or these other solutions that he's doing? So he did one when both of his daughters got hair lice and he didn't like the like store-bought options that were available. If you go to the drugstore, you'll be offered some kind of medicated shampoo that's got a pesticide in it. And so he Googled around and he was looking for like natural solutions. And then he found one where you could, I think it was petroleum jelly, so like Vaseline basically. And so he found that so you could he could put that on his daughter's heads and test it to see if it worked. And did it? Yeah, it did work. Um, but he also did he did some research on stopping drug addiction. The first thing that I was gonna put up there was actually a medication that's used to treat drug addiction. It's called ibogaine. And anybody who has a problem with drug addiction ought to at least know about that, uh, because of its uh promise as an option. Um, but most people don't. And so that's uh, one of the main sections on that website. I think that he just does a lot of these types of experiments and contraception is just kind of like one of the things that he's looked into. I think he has a great appreciation for people who contribute to like that type of culture and is like, this is what the internet's for. It's like learning things from other people and being able to share things with people you don't know and whatever. And so he just sees this as like a public service. Right, and testicular heating is an area where there isn't a lot of information. Right. And so that sort of contribution can add a lot. Did you ask him if he had tried other forms of contraception? Yes. Yeah, they tried everything. He walked me through like all of the different things that they had tried. We went through the conventional options, of course. Booth control pills would cause depression. The spermicide would cause uh, burning skin. Vasectomy isn't reversible. Uh, neither is the tubal ligation. And then without uh, spermicide, a lot of the mechanical barrier options aren't very effective. God, I love this guy. He's great. Um, I also wanted to add that uh, another um, birth control method that we looked at was, um, what was it called? Fertility. I'm looking at my own notes here. It's been so long. Symptothermal method. And basically, yeah, that's tracking cycles to find out when the infertile portion of my wife's cycle would be and then have sex during that period. And although we could have done that, we were, or, we were organized enough to, to effectively do that, the problem is that then we ha can't have sex during the most, uh, you know, the time when her libido is the highest, which is when she's fertile. And so it's not a very, uh, it's not an optimal method to have to use that. So he's like, there's got to be a better way. Yes. It's a very noble endeavor when you put it that way. I think he just really doesn't think that this is that strange and was like, okay, I hate all of the methods of birth control that are out there for women. As a man, what can I do? I want it to be reversible. 
So you think he was just like Googling around for male contraception and then found heat-based contraception and then just kind of went down an internet rabbit hole? Yeah, which is exactly what I did. I started doing internet searches, which I always turn to when I have a problem that can't figure out a good, uh, you know, happy solution. And I found these, um, these studies of a lady in uh, India. Basically, in the 1940s, there was this Swiss doctor who was working in India named Martha Vogley. And she ran these tests on nine men of different backgrounds. And she found that she could induce temporary infertility using hot baths. They were trying to deal with the famine at that time. People didn't want to have children because there wasn't enough food to go around, and she wanted to offer them uh, an effective method of contraception. So basically what happened is the men would sit in hot water for 45 minutes a day for three weeks, and then they would be infertile for six months. And so if they just took this hot bath at regular intervals, then they wouldn't have children. But that meant that they had to be really hot. It had to be 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, the study went on to say that couples after the famine did go on to have normal children. So not only does that show that the method is reversible, it seems to show that the, you know, at least in a small sample, that the children can, um, can uh, be normal after the contraception is reversed. Dr. Vogley wanted to develop a small device that could be worn by men who didn't have 45 minutes to spend in a hot bath on a regular basis. Mm, this is sounding familiar. Okay, so... What happened? Men weren't on board. In 1956, she wrote a letter to the editor of The Lancet in London trying to get her findings, like, officially published, but it never happened. And then a year later, in 1957, the hormonal birth control for women was approved by the FDA in the U.S. um, for regulating menstrual cycles. Three years later, it was approved for contraceptive use, and by 1965, the pill was the most popular form of contraception in the U.S., Okay, so now that there's a way for women to take care of the whole birth control thing, men don't need to do it anymore. Yeah, Is that exactly. where we're going with this? Yeah, exactly. Okay, just checking. Yeah, so like it, as long as the solution depends on men to actually be proactive and do something about it, um, it's not going to work because it's not going to scale because there's very few men who are going to be willing to actually do that. And so then women can do it, and which doesn't matter what the side effects are because women will just do it. That seems to line up with the way that I know the world. That seems believable. Yeah. So Chris was basically doing this in an attempt to help course correct that history. I had to decide between this hot bath method or my heating method, which was basically a rubber band that would cause my my testicles to remain in my inguinal canals, which is basically meaning they're they're raised into my abdomen. And doing that causes them to be at pretty close to my core body temperature rather than more at ambient as they normally would be. So what I ended up with doing was was getting a piece of uh, yarn and attaching it to the bottom of my underwear. And then uh, I put it around the base of my penis and put a uh, cord stop at the top. And um, so that's what I used the rest of the time. And... Uh, and that seemed to be effective. So every day I'd just break off a new piece of yarn, and, and that would be what I'd use. And I tended to use thick yarn because it would be uh, less constricting. He's very precise. He's super precise. But in a way that I feel like would not pass in a, like, scientific laboratory. <laughs> you can't, yeah. How was he actually confident that it was actually working? Like, this seems like pretty high stakes to 
oh. sort of not know? Well, he counted his sperm. First, I needed a baseline of my sperm count. And so I went to the um, Sutter Hospital and got referred to a fertility clinic where they measured my sperm count. So men make, this is terrifying, men make a thousand sperm every second. Okay, that seems like a pretty large number. I told you it was terrifying. Every second. (laughs) Yeah, and I did a quick Google search here to see what the normal ranges are. According to the American Pregnancy Association, they say that between 20 million and 300 million sperm per milliliter of semen is like a normal range Mm -hmm. for a fertile man. Yeah. And below 10 million is considered not good. Yeah. So I'm going to set the scene for you. It's November 23rd, 1998. That's all the details I have. I don't know what the weather was that day. So let's see, I got um, 89 million sperm per milliliter is the result of that test. And at the same time, I needed to develop some way that I could do these tests on my own because these, these, these tests cost about $100, $150 a piece, and I knew I couldn't do that regularly every month or two whenever I wanted to know what was going on. So I bought a microscope. So how does it work? He's not individually counting sperm, right? No. So what he does is he takes a sample and then he takes that amount that he can put underneath the microscope. And figuring out the area of a slide and figuring out the area I was looking at when I looked through the microscope at the slide so I could divide that by the total area. And I also immobilized the sperm using formaldehyde. I used a very tiny uh, amount of formaldehyde so the sperm wouldn't be moving so I could count them in the time that, you know, they would have otherwise swam away. And then they're stationary, he counts them, and then he multiplies that by 26,000. And where does the 26,000 come from, just to clarify? Because that's like the amount that he can see in the microscope is one twenty-six thousandth of a milliliter. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's like, in and of itself, a form of contraception. It's like, honey, I'm sorry, I'm going to stay up tonight counting my sperm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the secret. So he was at 89 million in the very beginning. And then he has some. Which is normal. Yeah, which is normal. He's perfectly fertile, could get a woman pregnant. So then seven days later, I I did a test on my own, and it was that was the 21 million. So he pretty quickly cuts it into a quarter, right? He's at 21 million, which is maybe technically still in the fertile range, but significantly lower than he was. And then 10 days after starting, it was down at 23,000 per milliliter. From 26 days on, it's below 26,000. And 26,000 basically means that I'm not seeing a single live sperm in, in on the slide. So that's the way it was for the first four months. I saw nothing. I saw a couple for the next several years. It's just dawning on me now that for 11 years, not only was he tying this thing to himself every day, but like every month or two, he had to get out the microscope and count his sperm. What does his wife think about all of this? His wife kind of seems to be used to it. She likes to do adventures with me, you know, and she, you know, appreciates that I uh, find these technical things that uh, they're useful and and interesting. Uh, So it it was nice to collaborate with her on this. That's great. Okay, so this seems to be working out well for uh, Chris, but what do the more formal scientific communities have to say about this stuff? 
So I had the same feeling, and so I made a phone call. Hi, it's John Amory. Who's he? He is an endocrinologist. I'm a physician and researcher here at the University of Washington, and I've been working in the area of male contraceptive development for about 20 years. And so I asked him to divide up those 20 years that he's been working and like what the arc of male contraception has been in that time. And he basically divided into two sections. The first 10 years I was working in hormonal contraceptives. That work dates back to the 70s. Um, It just didn't seem like it was progressing to the point where it was going to make it to the market. Um, Hormonal male contraceptives work about 90% of the time, but they don't work crucially in 10% of men. We don't know who those men are. Um, and it was also quite difficult to dose because most of the regimens involved injections and uh, dosing orally didn't seem possible. So initially we had some drug company support for that work, but that had sort of petered out by about 2008. And about 10 years ago, I, I switched off from that. And now I've been doing non-hormonal contraceptive development, looking at blocking the function of vitamin A in the testis because vitamin A in the testis is needed for sperm production. Anyways, we'll get to that. Had he heard of Chris before? He had not heard of Chris before. Interesting. I asked about using heat-based contraception. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, people have been interested in that for a while. Um, you know, when we're talking about infertile men, we tell them to avoid hot tubs. We've known for a long time that heat is bad for spermatogenesis. In fact, that's why the uh, testes are outside of the body. He said he had never seen anybody take it to the degree that Chris had. <laughs> Get it? Degree. Uh, yeah, I'm, here's the uh, thing is he made that joke to me first. Oh, my God. Three, <laughs> <laughs> get it? <laughs> oh, wow. I actually didn't get it, but I'll keep that in the podcast. <laughs> he did. He took it to a really a really high degree. Mm-hmm. 116 degrees Fahrenheit, I believe, is what it is. That's high. Yeah. <laughs> he said the main issue with it is that it doesn't work for all men, and they don't know why. What? Looking back, if you go and look in the literature at... Um, you know, there had been some work out of uh, Christina Wang and Ron Swerdloff's group uh, sort of using heat as a male contraceptive. Uh, it didn't appear that it worked in all men. You know, that we have a similar problem with the hormonal approach, that there's these subsets of men in whom these things don't work. And if you're trying to develop one for the market, you need it pretty much to work in everybody. So it looked like it worked for our friend, but, uh, I, you know, it's hard to know whether his experience would be replicable in everyone. Um, the data suggests that it's not, actually. So, uh, although, you know, maybe they weren't as rigorous as he was. Okay, so maybe heating your testicles doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for Chris, right? So if you could find a cheap way for people to easily monitor their sperm, this might be a real option for couples who don't want to take medicine, right? Well, maybe. Chris ran into a problem, and it's a pretty big one. So Chris's wife is going through menopause. He doesn't really need this anymore. He's been tying his balls up for a really long time. And so he decides to stop. I decided to discontinue the method. And I found that my sperm count went up to 10 million after two months. And it had been at its highest? 89. 89 million sperm. Yes. So. His sperm doesn't go back up right away. And he's like, well, I did do this for 11 years. Maybe it's going to take some time. So two months later, it was at 21 million. There were 16 million the next year, 14 million the year after. He keeps testing, and not only has his sperm count gone way below the infertile level, but their motility is very limited. 
so they can't swim. Right. So if you go to his website now, the one that he has to tell people about this method and to tell them it's an option, in very big font at the top in bold, it says what happened to him, which is that it turned out to not be entirely reversible. So he's infertile now. Yes. And one of the main reasons he did this method to begin with was because it was reversible. Oh, man. So if the whole reason for this was that it was reversible, does he regret doing this? No, I don't think he regrets it because I don't think he was trying to have more kids. He says like, well, my theory is that if a person is looking for temporary short-term birth control, then this might still be reversible. The other data we have from that study in India shows that it can be reversible after uh, a year or so. And we all know that, you know, that sperm decreases, you know, in athletes when they have a, you know, athletic suspender and it um, recovers when they stop using that. And so it's it's not that this is irreversible, you know, in all cases. It's just in my extreme case because nobody attested it for this length of time. So he still considers it to be a viable option with certain big caveats. Right. So his thought was, I think that this could still work, but in the shorter time periods. But but he doesn't have proof of that. He doesn't really have proof of that. He is just thinking that based on the fact that athletes can do this for a little bit and other people can do it, like you can work with your laptop on your lap and then you can still have a baby. Billy Disney is evidence of this. Um, sorry, Thank Billy. You. Very personal. <laughs> sorry to bring you into this, but your wife hey, is very pregnant. You know? So it sounds like... Uh, John, our endocrinologist friend, isn't uh, totally sold on heat-based contraception, like what Chris is doing. Um, But obviously he's looking into male contraception of some sort. So what is it that he's doing? He's working on suppressing vitamin A in the testis. Is that more effective? It seems like it would be more effective. So um, in the late 50s and early 60s, researchers stumbled across this drug called WIN-18446 that they had been studying for parasitic infections and it made the lab mice, the males, infertile. And they didn't know why, uh, and, but they gave, it was reproducible in lots of species and they even tested it in about 100 men and it suppressed sperm production. So they said, great, we got ourselves a male birth control pill, but then the issue, and I think this is very interesting, the issue with this male birth control pill is that men couldn't take the birth control pill and drink alcohol. I learned about this in about 2007 and hypothesized that it was working via the vitamin A pathway. And in fact, that turned out to be correct. So uh, we found out that this old drug, WIN-18446, was working via inhibition of the conversion of vitamin A to retinoic acid in the testis. And we identified the enzyme involved in that process and are now developing drugs to block it. So by doing this, they would prevent vitamin A production only in the testis. Your body would still have vitamin A for all of the things it needs elsewhere, but you would no longer produce sperm. Uh, and we think that that is a promising approach. So what's the holdup? It sounds like they found the solution. Well, the holdup is there's no funding. Drug companies are interested in making money, and the big money right now in drug development is in oncology and immunology. How much funding do they need? Drugs are really expensive. You know Elon Musk by any chance or somebody really wealthy? (laughs) I don't know if he would be into this. It seems, I don't know. He may not take your call. I had high hopes for Paul Allen, but now he's dead. So Mm. there you go. 
What do you think that men specifically could do to move us there faster? Men? Yeah. Oh, men. Men need to basically make a lot of noise and start demanding better funding for men's health research. It's amazing, really, if you look at it, the amount of money that goes into men's reproductive health is almost nothing. So about half of pregnancies in the United States are unintended, and about half of those end in abortions. Now, maybe some of that is that women don't have access to uh, contraceptives, but there are a lot of women who can't take contraceptives because they can't tolerate the side effects or because uh, they actually have a contraindication, such as a blood clot or uh, other breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So they can't actually use hormonal methods that are available to women. So there's a big unmet need. So if men want to do something, they should agitate for more funding for men's health, for infertility, contraception, and so forth. Here's the important question here. Do you feel like you now understand more about heat-based contraception? I don't necessarily feel like I understand more about heat-based contraception. <laughs> that's the oh, goal no, of the show. That's the whole thing. That's... No, but here's the thing. Well, okay, so I maybe I understand more about it in the sense that when I came into this, I thought that this was the potentially the solution, and it was like, yeah, just cook your balls. But no, that is not the solution. The solution is... A little bit TBD, but we're learning more every day. But the key to a solution to this problem is it working for all men. Did John think Chris's experiment was trustworthy? What's the word I'm looking for? I think that he thought Chris's experiment was what Chris's experiment was, which is really interesting, really extreme, and not indicative of an actual solution for male birth control. It's sort of just like interesting uh, hobbyist yeah. case study. Right. It's just like I, I'm obviously a very different kind of person from him because I would like never do this in the first place. But to me, if I had spent 11 years doing this, and it sounds like it could be really uncomfortable, at the end of that, if I just spoke to another scientist who's like, yeah, dude, sometimes heat works yeah. and sometimes it doesn't, you might have gotten lucky. I don't know. I'd feel like I wasted more than a decade of my life documenting something that doesn't really have a future. Yeah, but but maybe Chris's one experiment doesn't have that big of a real impact in terms of the data he was collecting, but I think the sentiment behind it, right. if more people thought like Chris does and were willing to take on some of these burdens so that women don't have to, then maybe the funding problem that John was talking about wouldn't be an issue, and maybe we would have already solved this problem. Right. One thing that Chris really emphasized to me was that he does these experiments to make life easier. Basically, I'm interested in things that make life easier, and so I'm very, I guess I'm very practical as a scientist. I have a hard time studying something if I don't see it uh, being useful for things. So it, at first I laughed because I was like, how could this possibly be easier? But then I was like, oh, it's not about being easier for him. It's about making it easier for other people. So, you know, people who are addicted to drugs, his daughters, his wife. And then he puts it all on the Internet for people like me so that I can find things easier. 
my interest has been more practical. I figure just the fact that there are actual clinical trials on rats to see if this might be a useful method of contraception means that, you know, it's promising enough to be worth studying for me. (laughs) In a weird way, it is kind of altruistic, right? Yeah, I think Chris was doing it for his wife. I think that Chris was like, all of these options suck, and I don't understand why you're the only one who has to suffer. So I'm going to cook my balls for 11 years because that's love. Underunderstood is reported and produced by Adrian Jeffries, Regina DeLay, John Lago Marcino, and me, Billy Disney. Special thanks this week to Chris Jenks and John K. Amory. If you want to learn more about Chris's experiment, along with some photos of his setup and all kinds of links to more research, check out our website, underunderstood.com, which will send you right on over to his self-hosted situation. If you like our show, please share it with a friend. You can find direct subscribe links, transcripts, and a lot more over on our website. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd really love it if you gave us a rating or review in there because that helps other people find the show. And if you have a burning question that the internet can't answer, please, we want to hear about it. Email us at hello at underunderstood.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Next week on Underunderstood. I am looking right now at a two-sentence Wikipedia article for a place called New Vietnam. Huh. New Vietnam was a theme park proposed to be built near Cape Canaveral in the mid-1970s by evangelist Carl McIntyre and Giles Pace, a former Green Beret. It was intended to simulate what the Vietnam War was like during the height of fighting, featuring actors shooting blanks. Oh my god. I can find absolutely no information about this anywhere on the internet. I just imagine it like, you know, I would go to these theme parks where there'd be like Old West recreations of like a train robbery like you're on like a little train ride and then all of a sudden it turns into a train robbery like I'm imagining like that but it's like guerrilla warfare right yeah right do we have a sense of how advanced this project got before someone was like no no I don't think we have any idea and maybe that's a more interesting question actually because I mean as tasteless as it is it's Florida there's a market for literally anything in Florida. (laughs) So if Carl McIntyre wanted to create this theme park, what stopped it from becoming real? What happened to New Vietnam? That's next week on Under Understood.